see me limping. I had leg surgery recently, and that's why I didn't stand during the music, but my heart was standing. I'd like to tell you some juicy stories about Jack when he was a student, but I can't remember that far back. <laughs> it's like two old guys on a park bench, and one of them says to the other, these days, when I don't feel like myself, it's a big improvement. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if one of you gentlemen were working on the roof here for a work Saturday and you fell off a long way down onto the hard earth, you landed on your arm, and you did not feel a thing? No pain. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if another one of you workers were hammering along and you missed and hit your thumb real hard and you didn't feel a thing. I think that would be super. Or if one of you ladies were working in the kitchen and you inadvertently spilled a big pot of boiling water all over your legs when you're wearing shorts in the summer and you didn't feel any pain from that boiling water, wouldn't that be outstanding? Actually, no. That is the last thing you would want. Just ask Bob and Maxine Waters. It was some decades ago now, but they had three, three children in their London home. And even though neither parent had this disease, all three children had a rare congenital defect called congenital analgia, insensitivity to pain. And these are the facts. It was a living horror in their home. One little girl broke her right leg five times by her second birthday. The children bit off parts of fingers, which could not be replaced, bit off parts of tongues, because in their experimentation, they didn't feel a thing. One girl had a chronic nosebleed because she banged her head against the floor so often. But she didn't feel a thing, so she thought it was fun. And several kids had burn scars all over their bodies because they didn't feel anything when they filled anything on it. Several had cuts and had to have major stitches and cuts and scars all over their arms and legs, but they didn't feel it. Pain in the physical realm is often a friend as much as we don't like it humanly because it's, for many times it's a warning signal if we respond to a certain pain early enough, it may save us through surgery from cancer before it takes our lives. Or if we get burned on the stove once, we know we don't put our hands there by choice. Pain is actually a friend. It's a warning. And I believe, despite what you often hear on so-called Christian television and the health and wealth gospel, I firmly believe that pain is a friend for the Christian and for the people of God. One of the biggest weaknesses I see in the church in the West, and I have the privilege to speak in 20-something countries, and especially in the West, is that we have an extremely weak and shallow theology of suffering. And I'd like to cover today the reality of pain, the reassurances of pain, during pain, resources during pain, and potential results of pain. 
all in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn there with me, we'll be reading the first 11 verses. I'd like to ask you rhetorically, of course, what kind of pain are you experiencing? Is it relational, emotional, because of an estranged relationship with someone you love? or a grown child away from the Lord and away from you? Is it unemployment and the pressure of not having enough finances to make ends meet? Is it the loss of a loved one, even if that person was a Christian? Is it something that I will illustrate some throughout this message? Is it just depression? Sometimes without a cause, your mood and your spirit is dark. I'd like for you to think about how you have most often suffered and whether it's a friend or a foe and based on this passage, what to do with it. It's one of my favorite texts. I'm going to read it. I use the New American Standard Version, but you can follow along. 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as our, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Jesus Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, he's addressing cisterns too, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you joining and helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Let me pray again. Father, take these feeble words of mine and may I accurately represent your powerful word. I pray to do what I cannot do. Take them from the ear through the mind to the heart and let them penetrate to encourage, to inform as needed. For your sake, amen. I want us to talk about the reality of pain. Now by background, we see that Paul is referring without many specifics in this passage to his own sufferings. He says very clearly in verses 4 through 7, who comforts us in our affliction, talking about he and his team, 
And then he says, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance in verse 5. And he mentions his suffering again in verse 7. Now, Paul, in his long ministry as an apostle, had a lot of persecution. We don't have that kind of pain, perhaps, but let me just take you to a passage without turning there where he gives a litany of some things he went through to give specifics to his reference to suffering. It's in the last part of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following. He says, five times I have been beaten or lashed with 39 lashes with a whip. Five times, 39 lashes. Three times he had been beaten with rods in his effort to share the gospel. I think he said he had had three shipwrecks. We know of one of them dramatically later in the book of Acts. He had many deprivations of food. He was often cold, often without a house place to live in when he traveled. He went without, and then he mentions also the foes of the gospel, the enemies of the gospel who spread lies about him and a false gospel, and he shared his internal burden of pressure for all the churches. I mean, you just look at that one portrait, and Paul knew affliction experientially, and yet he calls God a God of comfort. So the reality is seen in this text in sufferings and afflictions mentioned three times, and it's seen in his experience otherwise, but it's actually seen throughout Scripture. My purpose is not to go into this in great detail, but Psalm 94, 19, 34, 19, excuse me, 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We don't go through difficulty, we don't go through adversity, even when it's not a consequence of sin, just because we have failed or just because we lack concentration. The righteous have afflictions. We live in a broken and fallen world. That's just reality that the Bible affirms, both Old and New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, well-known phrase, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It mentions in 1 Peter 4.12 where he's dealing with Christians who are suffering for their faith. He says, you... Don't act surprised at the fury ordeal you're going through if it's something that you shouldn't expect. He said, this is to be expected for a believer in a fallen world. 1 Peter 4.12. James 1, a great little text on the character benefits of adversity, he doesn't say, count it all joy if you experience various trials. He says, count it all joy when you experience various trials. By the way, that word translated various is from a Greek word that meant multicolored, many different forms, and trials come inwardly and outwardly in many different forms. There is another verse in scripture that uses that term before grace. And Merrill Tenney, one of my New Testament profs back before the earth crust hardened in the 1970s, he said, for every color of trial, there's a corresponding color of grace. I like that. So the pain is a reality. The truth is that God's people are not immune to pain and suffering, but we're going to see briefly that God may even allow or engineer them for the sake of bringing us closer to him, causing us to desperately cling to him when we wouldn't otherwise, or to show who he is through our pain and suffering and to expand our ministries through it. James I. Packer, if you haven't read this classic book, I highly recommend it. 
It's a book on the attributes of God and some basic truths of the gospel, still in print after many decades. His best-known book of this now 90-year-old saint who, last I heard, was blind but still writing when he was 89 last year. In his book, Knowing God, written sometime around 1970, it's a classic. But he had one chapter in there. He gives a theology of suffering and trials. It's called These Inward Trials. Oh, how many times I have read that chapter and marked it up. The book is Knowing God. And in that book, or in that chapter, he says, too often Christians expect on earth what God only promised for heaven. Too often Christians expect on earth what God only promised for heaven. And pain or suffering or setbacks is not always due to sin. Certainly we can have painful consequences of sin, but it's not always, especially when you come to a suffering such as I've had a chronic issue with, and that's depression. I can have a dark, melancholy mood. By God's grace, I can still go teach or preach and do it with fervor, but I can be down and I have taught classes before and had great ratings, and I'd go back to my office and lie in a fetal position and cry and couldn't tell you why. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, just read a book recently called Spurgeon's Sorrows by a pastor in the Midwest. I already knew some of this, but not this much detail. He died in his late 50s, had very severe gout before they had treatment for it. But at age 24, a great period of darkness came over him, and he says, I sometimes cry like a baby, and I can't tell you why. He also wrote on another episode of depression, you might as well fight with the morning mist as fight with its all-beclouding hopelessness. And yet I have had people, well-meaning people, come up to me when I've asked prayer for despondency, in the church Sunday school class I taught. Terry, are you having your quiet time? I certainly believe in the sustenance of God's word during depression. Don't get me wrong. But to think that I'm having depression because I'm not praying or I'm not in the word, that's superficial. That's not understanding the pain. Some of my hardest days to plow through in my melancholy mood is when I have been rock solid in my devotional life. There's no correlation for me. And we so want to give easy answers. Pain is not always due to sin or even subpar faith. If, if depression, for example, is just one example, were due to subpar faith in every instance, then I suppose the great Charles Spurgeon, whose books and commentaries we still have all these years later, he died in the 1800s, I suppose he was a had anemic faith and was a spiritual babe all his life. I don't think so, or so many biographies wouldn't be written about this great man. But he didn't stop serving. He still went to his office and wrote out his sermons every Monday after he preached so we could have them today in books. And he founded orphanages and he founded school for pastors. He kept serving and he was known for his laughter. He was known for his sense of humor. Life wasn't all gloom and it isn't for me but he had periods of darkness he couldn't explain that wasn't related to his faith directly. So the reality of pain is important. If we do not have a realistic understanding that suffering is part of the human condition and suffering is not always a direct consequence of our sin, then we're going to lapse into complaint. Why is this happening to me? My wife often reminds me that, Terry, the planets do not revolve around you. You're not the center of the universe. 
or bitterness, especially toward God. Why would he dare let this happen to me? Or even more perhaps, and this is something James Packer covers in this chapter of knowing God, these inward trials, we check our spiritual pulse and say, well, I shouldn't have this unemployment. I shouldn't have this setback. I shouldn't have these strained relationships. I must not be spiritual enough. I must not be faithful enough. Where am I in disobedience? And Packer says we keep checking our spiritual pulse and try to find something wrong when it may just be God trying to bring us even closer to him in dependence. That chapter is worth ten times the price of the book, knowing God, these inward trials. So if we're not realistic about pain, and I've only touched on that topic, we'll either complain or be bitter or constantly checking our spiritual pulse to find out what's wrong with us. It may not be anything wrong with us. Second, get back into the text and see the reassurances during pain. And I see two here. One is the character of God and one is the sufferings of Christ. And I'll share how those reassure me. In verse 3, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies, he's merciful, and God of all comfort. And Father also connotes love and concern for his children. Anytime I struggle with depression, anytime we struggle with a circumstance that we don't think we deserve, it's a theological exam. The main exams Christians face are not the ones you go to school to get. It's the ones that life offers. They're not true false. They're not multiple choice. Every area of pain is a test. Do I still believe God is good or not? Do I, do, do I still believe God loves me or not? Do I believe God has the power to either remove my circumstances or to change me in the midst of them? It's a matter and a test of our belief in our theology of God. But Nahum 1.7, whether I'm feeling this or not, it's true. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. I may not feel his goodness, but his word says his goodness. He's good. Or I think of Isaiah 30, 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. And I'm thinking in light of what I'm experiencing, is he compassionate or not? I'm not experiencing it right now. At least I don't perceive it objectively. So which is truer, my feelings or the word of God? And I often have to preach to myself that even when I'm not feeling it, his word is more reliable than my feelings. Amen. Reassurance of the character of God. And it only mentions a couple here. Sufferings of Christ, verse 5, are mentioned. It says, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. I know you're a well-taught church and you know about the sufferings of Jesus, but we don't totally understand what I will call the psychological or spiritual pain of the cross. Yes, the cross was a horrible way to die physically, but in a way that's a mystery, there was a moment in time when God the Father, who had loved the Son from all eternity, as you know, Jesus had existed from all eternity, but not always in human form. This, and when he was on the cross, he cried in Mark 15, 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Are you aware that the Son of God felt forsaken by the Father on the cross? Of course, God had to forsake him or he would forsake us. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. My sin and yours was put on his back, and the holy God cannot look at that. He had to forsake his son. He had to forsake his son there on the cross because he was bearing our sin. Jesus understands pain. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his, his crucifixion, he separates from three disciples, and the scriptures are very clear. It says he threw himself to the ground to pray in the garden. He didn't just, you know, very politely and spiritually and humbly bow. He threw himself down. He was, it said he was desperate. He was in great distress, not only because he knew the physical pain, but because somehow, mysteriously, he understood the cost of what God would do, that he would return his back on him. And there had never been a separation in the Trinity before then. So what Jesus went through simply tells me that I have somebody who understands for very different reasons. His pain was for our redemption. My pain is not necessarily for anybody else's redemption, though God can use it redemptively. But because Jesus understood pain, he, in Hebrews 5, 7, he offered up prayers to the Father with loud crying and tears. When you are so much in pain and you don't know what to do and you cry out to the Lord with loud crying and tears for help, then just remember that Jesus did too, Hebrews 5, 7. That motivates me that I go to a Lord who understands my humanity, though he did it without sin. He understands the physical limitations of needing sleep and being sleepy. He understands the pain emotionally. And that motivates me. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is the application. We do not have a high priest who does not sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in all ways were like us except without sin. Therefore, we can go to the throne of grace boldly in our time of need and find mercy and grace to help us. My motivation for going to him is what he has experienced and the pain he has experienced. So my reassurances is the character of God. He's not only loving, but he's powerful. Love without power would be Weak sentimentality, he couldn't do anything. Power without love is harsh tyranny, but he combines those. He doesn't always take away my pain. I have a right to ask him to. But I can tell you, though, I have never been totally cleared in all my years of desperate praying of my depression. I can tell you that he still used me. I can tell you somehow I have never missed a class because of it. I can tell you somehow that through the tears, I'm forced to cling to him and be dependent upon him when otherwise I might be proud of my speaking or my writing or whatever. I can tell you that he has sustained me, and we are closer because of it, and I think that's his ultimate goal. The reality of pain and the reassurances, the character of God and the fact that Jesus suffered and understands, therefore I go to him more freely. Third, our resources during pain. I see two mentioned here directly, the Holy Spirit in verse 3 and the body of Christ in 3 through 7 and 11, other Christians. It simply talks about the God of all comfort. I know that literally the third person of the Trinity is not mentioned there, but generally the Holy Spirit is the comforting agency of the Trinity and the, whole, and the Godhead. 
we know that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, Romans 8, 9. So he's with me when I don't feel him, as we just said. But he is the comforting agent. In John 14, 16, Jesus gives an interesting word. He, the disciples are worried. He's heard them talk about the fact he's going to, to be leaving them bodily through his ascension. And he says, the Father will send another helper, that's the word for the Holy Spirit, who will be with you always, John 14, 16. That may be translated comforter, but it is the word for encourager, noun form. It comes from two words meaning one who comes alongside. And though he indwells us, I know theologically, he's saying the Holy Spirit will be your encourager, your comforter, and he will be with you always. He is our primary comforter. It's like jumper cables. Sometimes when you leave lights on, last one of the times I went to the Charlotte airport to fly overseas, got out in the dark early one morning, left my interior light on when I got my suitcase out of the seats. About a week later, I came back, and it's midnight, and I want to drive to Columbia, and I'm tired, and nothing happened when I turned the ignition. But they do have these people who patrol for just that reason, and they, uh, I called, and a truck came by, hooked up the jumper cables, and within two minutes, my engine was running formally. My battery had potential. It had just died, and it needed to be replenished. Our batteries need to be replenished. And the Holy Spirit does that. And he is our comforter, the one who gives us a jump. But the body of Christ, he often works through the body of Christ in verses 3 through 7. I do want to go back and mention that though the word is not mentioned directly here, the Holy Spirit is the author of the scripture. And one way, one big way, primary way the Holy Spirit comforts me and my affliction and perhaps you, is through his written word. Not only with the character of God we've mentioned, not only the promises of scripture, which are great to memorize, but just perspectives it gives. I can recall the time on a early one morning, the sun was rising. Back when I was younger, I would get to see you a lot earlier than I do now. And I was looking out, my office was in the boys' dorm and my call memorial, no students were stirring yet. The sun was just coming up, and I had been in depression for weeks. I had classes that day. I didn't feel anything. My heart felt dead, and yet I'd memorized Lamentations 3, 22 through 25. I got up from the couch in the lobby and looked, and I said, Lord, I don't, I don't think I'm experiencing this right now, but you say it's true. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. Lord, you say they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who seek him, to the one who waits for him. And I said, Lord, I don't feel it, but I'm going to trust you. I have work for you to do today. I want to do it with passion, and I don't feel anything. My heart feels dead. Lord, I believe that's true, and my feelings aren't. I can't tell you that ended my depression episode, but I was able to teach with enthusiasm that day. It sustained me for that day. It helped me take the next step. It's not just a spiritual bromide or a magic wand. The truth of God seeps in and I start believing it, that he will equip me for what he called me to do, even in that depression. 
So the body of Christ mentioned in 3 through 7, Paul is simply saying that when I've gone through affliction and I've experienced the comfort of God, I can comfort you as a leader. But in verse 11, he says, I need your prayers. I will be helped by your prayers. It was never one way, Paul, to his people. He constantly asked people to pray for him in his letters. We need one another. God often gives his comfort not only through his word, through the from the Holy Spirit, but through other people. Galatians 6.2 talks about bearing each other's burdens. And that's extremely important. But I've discovered something, whether it's a, a, strain, a son that I'm concerned about spiritually who's in his 40s or whether it is uh, my depression, whatever the adversity. Sometimes I'm too proud to tell others about my need. Well, if, if I tell this group to pray for me because of depression, they're going to think, well, he's not, he's not very mature. He doesn't have any faith in the Lord. Or if I tell them about a 43-year-old son that I wish were walking closer to the Lord, they'll say, what mistake did he make as a father? So there's always a risk to transparency. But no one, in terms of the body of Christ, you do have to be selective in who you share those things with, but nobody can bear your burdens unless you're willing to reveal them. Nobody. But I know people who keep those things to themselves and never get the help of the body of Christ and the sustenance. So here Paul asks for prayers and he says, I can help you with your suffering because I have suffered and experienced the comfort of God. I recall years ago during a major depressive episode, in fact it was in the early 90s, and my wife heard me make a comment, and she thought I was suicidal. Um, I know I've been to funerals of friends who've committed suicide in a moment of depression. And if they're a believer, it's the last thing I believe is that it affects their salvation. It's not God's plan, but it doesn't affect their status before him. But in Incar I um, had two friends that my wife called. One was a pastor of another small church whom I'd had as a student. And he came by one evening, I was reading the paper, I had two young children then, and he came in unexpectedly, my wife was expecting him, and sat down beside me, I was in the recliner, and he says, I hear you've had some rough days. And then I realized my wife had called him, the other guy had already met with me for breakfast that day, that's a great way to get me comfort, it's take me out to eat. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> he sat down beside of me, and I'll never forget those words, Terry. I know you've been depressed. He said, if you want to play with your kids, if you want to grade papers from your classes at CIU, if you uh, want to keep reading the paper, that's okay. I'm not offended, but I'm not leaving your side for two hours. That's God with skin on. That's incarnation. I wrote the other friend who took me to breakfast and skipped. That pastor, this poem, Incarnation. It, it shows the truth that God comforts us through other people. The load is heavy. My body is bent. My spirit, too, is weak and spent. Darkness hovers, though the sun is high. Too tired to pray, too numb to cry. Feeling hopeless on a downward slide. Then you knock and come alongside. Encouraging words, a listening ear. I'm reassured that Christ is near. When pain turns the heart to stone, no one should have to go it alone. In time and space, through thick and thin, God wraps his love in human skin. 
but I have to be willing to admit my need and swallow my pride sometimes to get others' prayers. So we've seen the reality of pain, a couple of reassurances of pain, our resources, the Holy Spirit, who may come through his word or through the body of Christ. I do recall one other time, a lady who's with the Lord now, she had severe pain in her back. Her last 10 years, she was an invalid, had to stay in her home and have caregivers come in. But boy, she was a prayer warrior. You call her and she prayed over the phone. She didn't say, I'll pray later. She prayed over the phone. I literally, back, I wasn't on church staff then, as I've been many years, but back in those early 2000s, when I had my worst depression years, I would come home from church service and I would feel so immobilized by the despondency that I would take my good clothes off and put some shorts on and I would just sit on the bed and rock and hold my bare feet. I said, oh Lord, I can't wait to bedtime. I don't know how to escape this pain. Lord, how am I going to get through? I'm not saying it was a panacea, but it helped. I called Louise. I said, Louise, pray me through this day. She would pray. I mean, you, you hear, hear her pray, and you think it's Martin Luther praying. It was amazing. Hallelujah. It sustained me. I knew I had somebody not only over the phone, but later praying for me. We need the body of Christ. The results of pain. Well, one thing in the text it says for Paul, look at verse 9. He does mentions generally his suffering without specifics. The audience reading this obviously knew what it was. We do not want you, in verse 8, to be unaware of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. Notice it was not only external affliction, but Paul was a strong choleric temperament, not a weak, melancholy, emotional temperament. And he says, we were burdened excessively beyond their strength. We despaired even of life. This is the same man who confronted heresy in Galatia by calling the church idiots. It's in the original. He's a strong leader, but he says, I despaired of life. But look at why. Why did he go through this? Look at the outcome, the result in verse 9. We had the sentence of death within ourselves that we should trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Even the great apostle Paul needed to learn to trust more. He needed to be weaned from his self-sufficiency, from his natural knowledge of the Old Testament he had as a Jew. He needed to be, understand that if I do anything, there's no explanation for it other than God did it. And Packer in his book, Knowing God, emphasizes that it may serve to cause you to cling to the Lord more desperately, weans you of pride. It's desperation that's a good place to be in because it increases intimacy with him. So it weans from self-reliance, from self-trust, and puts trust in God. And it expands our capacity to minister to hurting people, even when what they're going through is not the identical pain we've experienced. In verse 6, he mentions, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. Paul says, my pain and my setbacks and my persecution can help you because in the context of that, I have experienced the sustenance and comfort of God and now I have something to give you. Listen, when you hurt, one outcome, I'm not saying that God in heaven pushes a button and that's why he does it. I don't understand him fully. I just know that one outcome of suffering of any kind can be a greater heart for those who hurt, can be more empathy. 
It's not just those who are depressed, but those who go through suffering. I'm much more prone now to sit down and write a letter to somebody that I know is hurting. Last summer, I gave the memorial service for the young man who died on the mountain top fall in Peru, Seth Thomas. It was all over the paper in one national news service in late June last year. The couple and Seth is in our church, his mom and dad. Seth was a very devout Christian, a medical student at University of South Carolina. And he had been a student of my wife's piano teaching at our home for 10 years before he went to Clemson. And then now he was in med school at USC. Going down there on a medical mission trip, climbing extra 4,000 feet, he was a great hiker, up to a mountaintop in Peru, well known for its gigantic cross. And the title of my message was, Why Seth Loved the Cross. That wasn't the first time Seth had gone to the cross where he fell off that precipice a thousand feet to his death to a path. That was his second trip to the cross. The first one came as a child. And on one of the blogs on my website, penetratingthedarkness.com, at the year anniversary in late June, I wrote, Why Seth Loved the Cross. And I wrote a poem for that memorial service because Seth loved to write poetry. And it was, we don't know why, we only know who. And sometimes that's what the hurt is. But one result, that family had to cling to God. The father, a deacon in our church. I've taken walks with him. His pain increased with the months. Didn't go down immediately. But, but God, does it still hurt? Undoubtedly. I don't understand God. But I know him just a little bit. And what I know, I can trust when I don't understand but it wanes from self-reliance and increases trust in God even when his providence is hard. But it, it expands capacity to minister. My ability to minister to this man through those walks and prayers and letters wasn't because I've lost a son. I just know a different type of pain. And I'm rather introverted. I'm rather self-centered. But by, by my pain, I'm more sensitive to people who are hurting, just a little bit more at any rate. In my depression, I have a few cards on the table out back, and I, I don't make any money off this, so I don't mind promoting it. I have a blog I began last fall, penetratingthedarkness.com, and there are some cards on that little table in the foyer. And all the things are how does faith and depression coexist? Things I'm learning, book reviews I've given, interviews with counselors, and some of my own story. All I know is that when I first wrote my depression story for a national magazine in 2003, Discipleship Journal, it's since gone under financially, but it was a Navigator magazine. It was published in two magazines in other languages overseas, put on a secular website of the mental health for the state of New York, and I got letters of people saying, you understand me. There's hope. If he's using you, there's hope for me. I couldn't tell him. I wrote that article in the middle of my worst depressive year of my life. Not eat 10 easy steps on how to overcome it, but how does faith sustain me in the midst of it and keep me going? And I basically tell you what I tell others. It's okay if you see me as weak as long as, long as you see my Savior as strong. Amen. The source comes from him. If people look at me and the trips I take or the teaching I do for all these years and the books I write and the blogs I write, and yet they know me, and how depression-prone I am, and they scratch their head and say, I know Terry Powell, that couldn't be him. It has to be God. That's the secret. The only explanation, God did it. 
I think Charles Spurgeon could say that. So and we wrap up, I'd like for you to pray when you hurt, whatever the cause of your pain. It's okay to say, God, take it away because we don't like it. That's a fair prayer. But dare you pray, God, before you do that, will you use it redemptively? Would you create a greater dependence on you? Would you wean me of any pride because I know what the pain is like? Lord, would you strengthen my sensitivity to other people who hurt so I'm not as cold-hearted? Lord, use it for the kingdom. Don't waste this pain. It says in verse 2, as he introduces this section, grace to you. I believe pain is a grace. The late Robertson McQuilkin, perhaps the godliest man I knew, and I knew him outside of class. I interviewed him a year or so before he died for an hour in his home. And he prayed for me every day for the last 15 years of his life. He must have known I needed it. He told me that before he died. You're one I pray for daily. Well, he says adversity is one of the greatest means of God's grace that he's ever invented. I want to close with a poem I wrote that shows the pain of depression, but it shows the hope of my belief. Like falling rain, I wrote it during a depression time in 2003 on a fall day when the leaves were falling and it was rainy and my spirit mimicked the weather outside. But I want you to see the end of it. My tears descend like falling rain. Their constant flow reveals the pain of much regret of fragile heart. I cannot stop them once they start. With every drop there is an ache. I did not know one's heart could break so many times in just one day. Despondency won't go away. I shout, yet God seems not to hear. He leaves untouched my hurt and my fear. Where is the God of Abraham? Where's El Shaddai, the great I am? Like falling rain, hope too descends. Are there not any dividends to faith within the here and now? Will God assist me when and how? Does he not care when what I feel makes dying grow in its appeal? Though it's racked by doubt, my mind turns to the word of God. Here is what it learns. He gave his spirit. He is near. In time, he'll wipe away each tear. Though I do not know how or when, my lips will smile and praise again. Christ understands the tears I shed. He also wept before he bled. His cross absorbed his tears and mine. Heart-rending pain serves to refine. God never acts except from love. My darkness was designed above for fruitfulness and for my gain. It's grace outpoured like falling rain. Let's pray. Father, I didn't write those words glibly, but I thank you for sustaining me through my greatest area of pain and emotional pain that I don't understand and it isn't always linked to circumstances. But I'm grateful in what small ways you use me in spite of it. But at least now, Lord, I have no choice but to rely upon you for strength each day. I have no choice. I know what I'd be without that. I pray for every man, woman, or child, or teenager here that when they hurt, that they would come back to this text and know the reality of pain, yes, but also your reassurances, know your resources, and the potential positive results. All for your glory, that in our weakness, 
you may show yourself strong. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Terry spoke to us this morning, uh, really in a time of hurt. We've experienced a lot of pain here at Calvary recently. Um, and, he, and he speaks truth when he says that we, we need to, to seek out God. He sustains us. And so this altar is open this morning. Seek him. Come, kneel here and, and cry out to God. He also spoke on the fact that we need brothers and sisters in Christ to, to lift us up and, and to pray for us. And so I'll be up front. Uh, Brother Tony, Pastor Tony will be up front as well. So come, speak with one of us. Cry out to God. The altar is open. Please respond however God's speaking to you this morning. <laughs>